God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to sing to you. God, we don't take it lightly that we can raise our voices for what you have done for us. We don't take it lightly, God, that you've stepped in in our place to give us, God, what we could never achieve for ourselves. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for how gentle you are with us. God, as sometimes we are overburdened with our fears, our worries, our guilt. God, you handle us with care. Your gentleness is a balm to us, and so we are so grateful. God, we love you because you first loved us. Your love is what has inspired and given birth to our love and our worship for you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would continue to inspire us and move us toward your company. God, that you would do to us as you did to Jacob after he woke from his dream, that he became aware of your presence all the more. God, I pray that you would awaken us to your company. That we would say with Jacob that you've been there all the time. We just weren't aware of it. So God, would you open our eyes to see you here in this time that flipping through these pages and reading these words would not simply be a mundane activity, but that each flipping of the page, each reading of the word, God, would be an opportunity to see your face. God, as we often pray, God, help me to be good at getting out of the way that people would see Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. You guys may be seated. Uh, Cornerstone, what's up? I like that. I appreciate that. Welcome. It's always good to be here. Uh, always good to share time with y'all. Uh, and even more so, always a privilege and an honor to uh, get to read God's word and try to understand what God is trying to say to us uh, through it. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be right in a, a Psalm 130. We'll kind of park there. And try to hear what God has to say to us uh, in this passage. Psalm 130, I'm reading from the CSB version. And we'll jump right in. Out of the depths I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. I wait and I put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord. More than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord, and with him is redemption in abundance, and he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you all for standing with me. I didn't invite you all to do that, but I appreciate it. Um, for those of you that are into the Enneagram, uh, world. I'm an Enneagram 4, so I'm a heavy feeler. I feel every feeling very deeply, and sometimes it gets overwhelming. And one of the things that I've endeavored over the last few years, ever since our transition from uh, New York uh, to Atlanta, is being able to find a, a healthy marriage between what I feel and what God has to say about feelings. <clears throat> that I don't want to make the mistake of pitting faith against feelings, but rather that I want to do the diligence of marrying the two and discovering who God has made me to be and that my emotions are cues and doorways into who he's made me and, as a result, into who he is. One of those feelings that is really difficult to process is the feeling of guilt, so hard to talk about guilt, but I think Psalm 30 talks so much about it. And it's interesting because the passage doesn't say guilt outright. 
but it gives you the outworkings of what guilt does to us and what it does to our relationship with ourselves, how we view ourselves, what it does to the relationship that we have with others, and then, of course, the impacts that it has on our relationship with God. And if there's anything that I think I want us to see as we process Psalm 130, as we journey through this passage, is this, that Jesus shows us the reward of facing our guilt and not evading it. Jesus shows us the reward of facing our guilt rather than avoiding our guilt. He shows us that the reward is freedom. That when we choose to face and confront the guilty feelings that we have, the reward is freedom. That there's something about guilt that it's trying to offer us that when we avoid it, we miss. And in so doing, we miss living out in the fullest of freedom that God desires for us. If Psalm 130 offers us anything, it offers us a few things, I think. The first one is that Psalm 130 invites us to face our guilt or to confront our guilt. It's always helpful to kind of wrap our heads around the context of any psalm that you're dealing with, right? Because the psalms are songs, and songs are written from an occasion or a circumstance, oftentimes motivated by a feeling, right? A feeling of anguish, a feeling of fear, a feeling of joy, a feeling of praise. So it's always good to kind of wrap your heads around the context of any given psalm that you're dealing with because that occasion gives birth to those words of joy, those words of anguish, those words of confusion or praise in the psalm itself. And yet across the board, most people can't really agree on the occasion that surrounds Psalm 130. Most people believe that it was David, and so that's what we're going to run with today. But we don't quite know the exact or specific occasion of this psalm. But when you look at the scope of David's life, you realize that there are no shortage of things that could have inspired this psalm. So just for our conversation today, I want to offer up a few considerations of what may have inspired David to pen Psalm 130. Let's consider the life of David. 2 Samuel chapter 13, when Tamar, his daughter, was raped by her half-brother Amnon. Tamar, his half-daughter, was raped by her half-brother Amnon, and David was practically absent throughout the entire situation. He doesn't say anything, doesn't do anything. And if you don't want to believe me, you can just go to 2 Samuel chapter 13. You can read it for yourself. That all we have by way of response from King David, the man that all of us so admire, in 2 Samuel 13 verse 21, all we get is this, that after he hears about what happened to his daughter Tamar, the text says that after he heard about all these things, he was furious. But that's it. That's all we get from David. He throws a fit. And I, know, and I know that we know those people that when something happens in society or in your own life, I think we've seen this particularly over the last several years where, where some kind of social injustice happens, something deeply uh, uh, grieving happens, and you have that group of people that get really angry but don't do anything. David hears about all the things that happened to his daughter Tamar by her brother Amnon, and all David does is get angry. 2 Samuel 13, verse 21, he gets furious. Let me not take that out. He gets furious. But that's it. That's all we have. He throws a fit. He gets angry, but he does nothing. He says nothing. What we do know, actually, as you read all of 2 Samuel chapter 13, is that David was the one that arranged for his daughter Tamar to visit her brother Amnon to bring him food and to be alone with him. Albeit unknowingly, didn't know that 
Amnon had some devious plans behind him. But David was the one that arranged for his daughter Tamar to go alone to her brother. But y'all, I got to be honest, as I read the context, the, the chapters before, the chapters after, it's not surprising to me that when you read the second chapter, let me be a little direct here, David was the rapist. It's not surprising that just a chapter before David says nothing, does nothing after his daughter is mishandled and raped by her half-brother. It's not a surprise that the chapter before David is the rapist. He uses his power and his influence as king to force himself sexually onto another, another man's wife. That's Sheba. Or perhaps the context of Psalm 130 involves when David's son, Absalom, plots to kill his half-brother Amnon after he raped his sister, Tamar. And David knew well of his son's anger and vengeance that was growing in him, but he did nothing. He did nothing to address his son's anger. He did nothing to confront the vengeance that he was living with. Because look, if you read 2 Samuel chapter 13 and you read those verses that we don't have time to read right now, the text says that after this happened to Tamar, she lived in desolation. This is like watching someone that you deeply love after something grave has happened to them, them live with the decaying shame of what has happened to them. And then the very next verse in, in verse 22, it says that two years later, David began to process what was happening. You know what happens in two years when something grave like this happens to you? Things fester. Absalom, her brother, was growing in his anger and his vengeance, and David knew but did nothing to confront it. And what's interesting is that it, it was that vengeance and that growing hatred in Absalom that led to his own death. Absalom would become an enemy of the state. And you read this in 2 Samuel chapter 18. He becomes an enemy of the state. And then he's killed by David's guards. And then in chapter 18, verse 33, David finds out about his son's death. And he says this. He says, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died Instead of you, Absalom, my son, my son. You know, when you read this, you hear a lot of grief in David's voice. But church, could I tell you that there's more than just grief in his voice as he says this? Could I tell you that more than just the weight of sadness in those words, these words also contain the, the weight of guilt. On his hands, David carries the shame of Tamar and Bathsheba, the death of both of his sons, Absalom and Amnon, the betrayal and murder of Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. He says, if only I had died instead of you. Yes, David feels the weight of sadness and grief and loss, but church, he also feels the weight of guilt. In Psalm 130, David does what I think all of us are often terrified of doing. He faces his guilt. He faces his guilt. You know, I believe that part of the reason why we are terrified to face our guilt, in part, is because in our larger culture, we are encouraged to be more forgiving to ourselves. Now, to be clear, <clears throat> I do believe that some of us don't treat ourselves very kindly. I do believe that some of us aren't patient with ourselves or gracious for that matter. That some of us love ourselves very poorly and it reflects in the way that we love others. 
I'm very aware of that. And I think that is its own conversation. But the temptation is to abandon or even minimize the feelings of guilt that we experience because it's too harsh of a concept to process. Or it's too negative of a feeling to experience. But to respond that way, church, doesn't do us any favors. To overlook guilt because it's just too harsh or complex of a concept to process or too harsh of a feeling to experience because we should be nicer to ourselves or we should be more forgiving of ourselves, which I think is an illusion to begin with, right? It, is, it, it doesn't do us any favors. Why is it so hard to talk about guilt? I think in part it's because we've lost our our way of how we talk about guilt. We don't often talk about guilt, its weightiness, its complexities, because I think we've forgotten how to talk about guilt. I love Barbara Brown Taylor in her book, Speaking of Sin. She says this about sin, but I think it applies to guilt as well. She says, abandoning the language of guilt will not make the feeling go away. Human beings will continue to experience alienation, deformation, damnation, and death no matter what we call them. Abandoning the language will simply leave us speechless before them and increase our denial of their presence in our lives. Ironically, it will also weaken the language of grace since the full impact of forgiveness cannot be felt apart from the full impact of what has been forgiven. Look, it may not have been part of God's intention in the very beginning when he made us, but church, guilt is part of the human experience. In fact, I think that a large part of what makes this psalm so beautiful and what it offers us is the opportunity to see that guilt can serve as a midwife to healing and wholeness. Rather than seeing guilt as something too harsh or too complex to process, or it goes up against this idea that I should be kinder to myself, so maybe I should find ways to erase or remove these feelings of guilt or minimize these feelings of guilt because I should be kinder, I should be more forgiving, we lose the opportunity of being reconciled. We lose the opportunity of feeling whole because guilt can serve as a midwife to forgiveness and healing. What I love so deeply about this psalm are the words that David uses to use when he cries out. He uses this word to describe the condition that he's in. He says, out of the depths, I call to you, Lord. That word depths is interesting in the Hebrew uh, because it means abundance. The word depths means abundance. It's the same word that we hear when Hannah in a previous story in 1 Samuel uh, describes about the way that she prays and what compelled her to pray. Where she says, I've been praying from the depths of my anguish and resentment. It's an interesting choice of words for David because abundance is the last thing that I imagine David is experiencing. In fact, when I think of the word depths, I think of a valley or some kind of hole where there's a void or emptiness. But that's not what's happening here when he uses this particular word in the Hebrew. When David says that he's calling out from the depths, he's not stuck in an empty hole, nor is he lost in a void. But rather, what he's communicating is that he is drowning in abundance. The question is, what is he abundant with? And verse 3 answers that for us. Verse 3 confirms that what David is abundant with or abundant in is guilt. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, who could stand? In other words, God, all I see around me is Tamar. 
All I see around me is Amnon, Absalom, Bathsheba, Uriah. All I see around me are the icons or the emblems that remind me that what is most abundant around me is guilt. Who could stand if you were to count iniquities against us? Who could stand? One of the most difficult things in relationship is having to look at the face of someone that you've deeply hurt. One of the most difficult things in relationship is having to look at the face of the people that you love so much after you've done something to hurt them. My wife Anna and I have been together for 20 years, 16 of those married, and we've had two decades to make memories together. Yes, sir. Praise God. I am a different man because of my relationship to my wife. We've had two decades to make memories with each other, learning each other, celebrating each other, serving each other. But we've also had two decades to get it wrong. We've had two decades of missing one another, of saying and doing things knowingly and unknowingly to injure each other. And it's happened. As I'm sure all of you know, if you've been in any length of relationship, you realize that you have enough time to make memories, but also to hurt each other. And there's no shortage of times in my relationship with Anna that I've had to confront the ways that I've done something or not done something to hurt her. And it never gets easy to look at her face when I hurt her. Every time I hurt her, I'm able to feel it. In my body, my body tenses up, my chest clenches, I feel a shortness of breath. I feel it because what I see in her face is hurt. I've injured her. I sense how the injury has fractured our relationship. And even if it was just for those moments, she doesn't feel safe or loved by me. I've put trust in jeopardy. And when you threaten trust, you threatened, you threatened that relationship because what is relationship if not a series of exchanges of and toward trust? So when I hurt her, she doesn't feel safe and I threaten whatever we've built together, even if it's just for, the, for those few moments. And in so doing, I threaten the relationship at large. But here's the thing, y'all. What's most often, uh, or rather often what's most terrifying in moments like that with my wife, or again, anyone that I love that I hurt, is not the face, but the realization that I'm capable of doing that. What's more terrifying to me is that I realize I am capable of causing that kind of fracture in our relationship, that I could do that to a relationship that I care so much about. And you know what the most surprising part of it all is? The most surprising part of guilt is that no one prepares you for how much guilt feels like fear. No one prepares you for how much guilt feels like fear. Because you see, often when we experience guilt, what's driving that is fear. We fear the loss of connection and intimacy. And in that fear, we wonder if what we've done or not done has broken us beyond the possibility of being connected and intimate in the ways that you've known before. You see, when I feel guilt, what's driving that, what's tormenting me is the fear that I mess this up beyond repair. Can I have connection with this person again in the way that I did before? Or have I tarnished and jeopardized going any deeper than what we have now? You see, the driving force of guilt is fear. The fear of loss of intimacy and connection. This is why facing our guilt is a matter of relationship. See, guilt is a relational thing, not a behavior thing. 
Yes, you feel guilt because of something that you've done, behavior. But the heartbeat, the driving force of guilt is not because of the behavior. The driving force of guilt is you wonder if you've messed up relationships. This is precisely why David says again in verse 3, Lord, if you keep account of iniquity, who could stand? Look, (laughs) when David makes that statement, if you keep account of iniquities, who can stand? Before you read too quickly and say that this is a statement of praise, I need us to realize that before this is a statement of praise, this is a statement of sobriety. In other words, David has to first come to to terms with why he needs forgiveness before he celebrates that he possesses forgiveness. David is made aware of the reasons why God is offering forgiveness. Verse 4, the second part of that little moment, he has to first come to terms with the fact that he needs it before he comes to terms with the fact that he has it. This is sobriety before praise. David is not just speaking for himself when he pens this. Unknowingly, David is also showing us the condition of our own hearts. He's showing us the ways that we harm our relationship with God And with others, and I would even say with ourselves. David is crying out from the depths, and when he does so, he's not only calling us to acknowledge our guilt, but he's also calling us to engage our guilt, to allow our guilt to lead us toward what God wants to offer us and what we are hungry for, which is forgiveness. Wholeness and reconciliation. The reason why we feel guilt is because we long for a relationship. And we've done something to fracture that. Guilt. And these are the, some of the reflections that I've had to come to grips with, particularly over the last year in my transition. Guilt is a gift because it shows us our hearts and it empowers us to give it what it cries for. There is no way to talk about how we can face our guilt and not talk about the obstacles that stand in the way of doing that, which leads me to my second thought. Psalm 130 not only invites us to confront or face our guilt, but it also gives us the courage to receive love. And notice that I say receive and not give. It is far more difficult to be a recipient of love than to be a giver of love. Far more difficult. Verse 3 is not just a statement of sobriety and of praise, which we'll get to, but it's also a statement of humility on David's part. And, you know, it's interesting. I I, I love that one verse can be seen in, in different angles. It shows the way things intersect with each other and can be many things at once. This statement in verse 3 is a statement of humility. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, who could stand? There's a picture that the original word in Hebrew communicates that we don't hear in English. English is what feels like a very one-dimensional language, (laughs) right? And oftentimes, one word in English translated in a, word, in a language like Spanish or Greek or any other language, quite frankly, carries a group of words <laughs> because it's meaty and beefy and multidimensional because our lives are multidimensionals. And so oftentimes, we just have one English word to des- describe a group of uh, several different words, and we often miss meaning because of that. But there's this picture that is painted by the original word when David uses the word iniquities. It's called avon. And it's the Hebrew word that it's 
describes kind of like a boulder sitting on top of you. And the way that guilt kind of sits on us when you've harmed someone or you try to explain the harm that you've done to them away. It's this feeling of guilt and heaviness and burden. Avon communicates a boulder sitting on your shoulder. And sometimes we try to explain our guilt away or at least justify it. We convince ourselves by saying things like, well, if they didn't blank, I wouldn't have blank. We refuse to acknowledge the guilt that our actions have brought. Well, I mean, really, I did this because this person did that. And, and you may in part be taking ownership, but only in part. It's as if David is saying, God, if you leave this boulder, when he says here, if you kept an account of iniquities... Who could stand? It's as if David is saying, God, if you leave this boulder on my back, it will crush me. God, if you leave this boulder on my back, it will crush me. No one will be able to stand in your presence if they could stand at all. Trying to. Look, if there's anything really clear about this song, it's this. David is head deep in his despair, and he cannot help himself. David has reached the point where he realizes that he is swamped in the abundance of guilt, and he cannot help himself. There is no getting out of this one on his own. And let me tell y'all, this is a big deal. For David to be aware of this is a big deal. You know why? Because David's a king. (laughs) For David to say, yo, if you counted iniquities, who could stand? Yo, if you leave this boulder on my back, it'll crush me. I need you. I cannot do this on my own. That's really, really big thing for a, a sovereign to say. David is a man of power and influence, and we saw it in the previous chapter when he said, I want shorty, so get me shorty. And this is perhaps why Ecclesiastes 8 verse 4, it says, the king's word is supreme. Who can say, what are you doing? I could almost imagine Dave, call him Dave for a second. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he lost all his king privileges. I'm going to call that man Dave. No, let me stop. Uh, But I can almost imagine King David kind of just chilling in his balcony, looking over and seeing Bathsheba and saying, man, I want her. She fly. I need her. And he he walks over to his guards and he says, yo, shorty over there, that's the one I want. And I can almost imagine the soldiers kind of like, um, she's married? But they couldn't because the king's word is supreme. Who can say to him, what are you doing? So for David to acknowledge, yo, if you leave this boulder on my back, I cannot stand. You see, church, what Psalm 130 is showing us is that David ran into another king. What Psalm 130 is showing us is that David ran into another king, a king he had to answer to, a king who could hold him accountable for his actions. He's saying, David, you have to face your guilt. He's saying, David, you have to face your shadows, your sin, your darkness. The depths of his despair, the weight of darkness is so heavy and so deep that David needs a power outside of himself to rescue him. David needs a presence other than his own to comfort him. But he's not without help. He's not without help. 
This is why in trust, he cries out from the abundance of his despair to the Lord. That's why in humility, he acknowledges that God is the only one who could remove his avon. That God is the only one who can remove the boulder from his back. David is not alone, although guilt may lead him to believe that he is. This is why in verse 4 he says, But with you, God, but with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. In other words, David is saying, God, you are the only one who can hold our guilt against us. And you don't. You are the only one that can hold our guilt against us and you don't. You bring forgiveness instead. Y'all remember the adulterous woman, John chapter 8? If you don't, we'll just take a journey out there. John chapter 8. Jesus finds himself in a difficult situation, at least so it seems. And in John chapter 8, verse 1, or excuse me, in John chapter 8, verses 2 all the way through uh, verse 11, Jesus finds himself in a circle of people who are trying to test him. There's been a woman who's been caught in adultery, and she's been brought to the circle. She's been brought to the square the public square, and they put it right in the middle and encircled around her are the people that are there to judge and accuse her for the adultery that she was found in. What's always interesting to me, as a parenthesis, what's always interesting to me here is that she was brought (laughs) and not the dude she was with. But, you know, it'd be like that. But she was brought out, put in the middle, And Jesus is standing there. And the Pharisees and the scribes are like, ah, this would be a good, this would be a good time to catch the teacher. Because they know that if he says one thing, he'll be at odds with one group. And if he says another thing, he'll be at odds with the second group. So they come to him. They said, yo, look, we found Shorty. You know what the Mosaic law says? We've got to stone her. Don't nobody want to do it. But you know, we got to. (laughs) Right? We got to do it. What would you do? I could almost imagine Jesus like, you know, Jesus is an OG. So I imagine Jesus like walking in kind of like, I was born for this. You know, like this is literally what I was born for. Like I, I, I came so that I can bring clarity to your ambiguity kind of thing. I, I bring answers to your questions. And, and they ask him, what would you do? And he, and he knows He's such a G, he knows what he's going to do, but he still takes time. He still takes his time. Talk about slow to speak, right? He still takes his time. Kind of crouches over, starts writing. Some Some people think that he was writing down the sins of the woman as a way to remind him of what he was going to forgive. Other people say that he was writing down the sins of the crowd to remind them of their misjudgment. Whatever it is, whatever it was that he was writing, Jesus stands and says to the crowd, he without sin cast the first stone. Yeah, man, he without sin Cast the first stone. And and, and what's interesting is one by one, the text says, they started to leave. (laughs) One by one, they started to leave. Check this out. Oldest to youngest. It's interesting how self-righteousness is contagious through the generations. But then this is what happens, starting in verse 9. Only he, Jesus, was left with the woman after everyone left. In the center, only he, Jesus, with the woman, 
was left in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where they at though? (laughs) He was like, yo, where they at? That's the rich version. This is what it says in the CSB. Jesus says, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? (laughs) I don't know what the woman felt, of course. But I, I know I would have felt very liberated by what was happening and what I foresaw was going to happen. She looks at Jesus and she says to him, what? Where are your accusers? Have they condemned you? Has no one condemned you? She responds, no one, Lord. And what does Jesus say? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Look, guilt, as heavy, complex, and harsh as it is, is an opportunity for discovery. The beauty of facing our guilt is that we discover that God is the only one that can accuse us, but instead, he clears us. We discover that God is the only one who can throw stones at us, but instead, he allows himself to be stoned. We discover in our guilt that God is the only one that can hang our guilt over us. Instead, he chooses to hang for our guilt. Instead of allowing death to swallow us up, Jesus allows death to swallow him up. Church, the opportunity in guilt is that we discover that the thing that had given birth to our feelings of guilt is not the thing that squelches God's love, but rather the thing that intensifies it. The Lord comes with forgiveness. He empowers us to make room for our guilt instead of leaving with fear, We leave with freedom. God is not just ready to forgive you. He's ready to redeem you. Y'all hear that? God is not simply ready to forgive you, wipe your slate clean, but he's ready to redeem you, empower, and stock you up for the future. It takes a lot of courage to receive that kind of love. Why? We talk about learning how to love a lot in the church. And I think these verses show us that we need to learn instead how to be loved. If we don't learn how to be loved, we won't be fully equipped to love. You see, there are two things that work against us being loved by God in this way. Our pride and toxic shame. In our pride, we rationalize our sin. We explain it away. We justify ourselves. Or in the language of our culture, we forgive ourselves, which, as I said earlier, feels like an illusion. Sometimes self-forgiveness can feel very fleeting, not very substantial, because excusing your intention is not the same as forgiveness. To excuse your intention is not the same as forgiveness. Ah, Rich, but that's not what I meant. That wasn't my heart when I said that, but you still heard them. Pick up the call when God calls. Just joking. Excusing your intentions is not the same as forgiveness. You may not have intended to hurt them, but you did, and that's real. Pride says, I don't need forgiveness because pride says, my heart is just fine. Pride, check this out, pride works really hard to maintain the right to need no one. 
pride works really hard to maintain the right to need no one. But then others of us deal with toxic shame. It's when we believe that what we've done is unforgivable, that we're too broken, that we're too incompetent, that we are beyond intimacy. Toxic shame makes us believe that we don't deserve forgiveness or relationships. So while pride works really hard to maintain the right to need no one, toxic shame works really hard to earn the right to be intimate with someone. Guilt is a gift because guilt is relational. It's a matter of intimacy between persons. And this is why David says in verse 5, I wait for the Lord. Sure, I could use forgiveness. Sure, it'd be great to be forgiven by God. Sure, it'd be great to be redeemed by God. But I will wait for the person of God who will come with forgiveness and redemption. Even when he talks about forgiveness and redemption, he makes it clear that his desire is for someone, not something, because he knows that that someone will come with the something he needs. Yet both pride and toxic shame fall short of what God desires us to do with guilt. God desires to carry our guilt and to bring us to intimacy in ways that we've never known. And this all comes to us in the form of Jesus. This is why in Ephesians, Paul chapter 1 verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The degree of forgiveness and freedom that we experience is directly related to our willingness to be truthful, vulnerable, and surrendered. How much freedom you are familiar with is in correspondence with how vulnerable, truthful, and surrendered you are willing to be. But as we've said before, looking at ourselves is terrifying. Looking at our guilt is a terrifying thing. And I love the way Father Richard Rohr puts it. He says it this way. He says, many of us avoid the path of self-righteousness. Excuse me. Many avoid the path of self-knowledge because they are afraid of being swallowed up by their own abysses. But Christians have the confidence that Christ has lived through all the abysses of human life and that he goes with us when we dare to engage in sincere confrontation of ourselves. Because God loves us unconditionally, along with our dark sides, we don't need to dodge ourselves. Because God loves us unconditionally, including the things we work really hard to hide, we don't need to dodge ourselves. In the light of this love, the pain of self-knowledge can be at the same time the beginning of our healing. Friends, guilt is terrifying to look at, especially when those you hurt wear it on their face. But guilt is also an opportunity for the freedom that you long for, for the wholeness that you long for, for the healing that you long for, for the reconciliation that you long for, not just with others, but with God who made you. I'll leave you with this exhortation from Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, it's in the message. He says, are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. 
I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Let's pray together. God, Holy Spirit, may you do what none of my words could never have the power to, and that is to awaken the Spirit in us. God, however we've treated Gil, however we've tried to avoid it, evade it, and in so doing, dodge ourselves and live half lives, God, I pray that you would give us the courage to face them and discover that the thing that gave birth to them, the actions that gave birth to those guilt will not squench your love for us, but rather intensify them. Holy Spirit, lead us to respond to the grace that you offer us, that we would not take grace for granted, but that we would lunge at the opportunity to say yes, thank you. That we would not stay in sobriety, but that we would move into praise. Because you've opened our eyes to the grace that you offer. Holy Spirit, do your work in us. As we continue to worship, as we come to the table, and we partake of eating the bread and the wine, reminders of how you've broken your body in our place. God, lead us into this presence with sobriety and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.